0: We often hear a lot of arguments For atheism, we often hear about, you know, religious, maybe church attendance on the decline, atheism or the belief of nuns, people who have no religious belief on the incline. And we often want to stop and ask, well, what is kind of the fate of Christianity? What is happening to Christianity around the world in America and overseas? And so joining me to kind of have this conversation and look at why actually maybe on the horizon there is this rebirth of belief in God, why secular thinkers and atheists are starting to Consider Christianity again. My guest to discuss this is Justin Brierley. He has this new book that is not out, set to come out in September, uh, titled "The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God: Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again." So, if you don't know Justin, uh, he is uh, the uh, been hosting and and recording podcasts and radio for about two decades. Is that right, Justin?
1: Yeah, nearly, Ryan. It, it's it's a long, long time. So I, I hosted the unbelievable show for over seventeen years, and that's where right. a lot of people will, will know me from. Recently, right. just moved on from that though, uh, and continuing though in the whole area of cultural apologetics. So I'm co-hosting a new podcast called Reenchanting, and working on some fresh projects, including, of course, this bo- this book. And this is probably one of the very earliest interviews I've ever done. Yeah, because it, it's still still about two and a half months away from from release. But of course, people can can get it on pre release already.
0: Yeah, and I was surprised when the publisher reached out and said, Hey, would you be willing to have Justin on the show to talk about his new book that's coming out in September? I was expecting an interview in September. And then she said, Hey, how, how about the middle of June? I was like, Okay, uh, the book is on its way. So I got the book, I think, just on Saturday, and you had just released the the, the cover art for it. Um, yeah. And so I sped through this as fast as I could over the last few days um, and just was a wonderful read. And um, I highly recommend uh, those who are getting it. And yeah, it's uh, your last book. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, you know, why after, you know, 10 years, I still believe or I'm still a Christian. It's like, yeah, this was at the kind of closer to that 10 year point. Uh, yeah. You wrote it after that. And and so, yeah, doing a lot of work. And, and I love the approach that you're taking as well as you're talking about getting in and doing cultural apologetics is is that's kind of my focus as well, doing my doctorate in cultural uh, engagement and how can the uh, the church engage culture better. And mm. so uh, uh, this book really kind of um, aligned well with that as you kind of really uh, addressed, I think, a question that I talk a lot about on the show is, is you know, I believe that God is 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 real and that Christianity is true because it makes the most sense of the world around us, that when we look at the world, the Christian story really does make the most sense. And so that is what you address here. And that is mm-hmm. what I'm looking forward to talking about. So for those who are joining and are new to the show, my name is Ryan Polly. This is Think Well, the show to get you to think well and engage the culture well from a Christian worldview. And so having conversations like this uh, on a major... Topics and issues, and a lot of different issues, and looking forward to the conversation today with Justin. So, with that, uh, Justin, kind of one thing I, I, I want to kind of always start when I'm doing a book interview is is kind of help people understand kind of who this book is written for, what was the purpose behind it, what were your thoughts behind it, what went into you writing this new book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God.
1: Well, as you mentioned, I'd written another book before that uh, that came out in 2017, uh, and that was really my case for faith after many years of, of doing the Unbelievable Show. At that point. But I think what I'd noticed in the years since writing that book, since that book came out in 2017, is that the conversation had changed quite a bit. So The Unbelievable Show was very much born in the heyday of the new atheism. In fact, just a few months after we started the show back in 2005, Richard Dawkins um, put out The God Delusion. Uh, that, That, in a sense, set the tone of the debate for a number of years thereafter as the new atheism was very much the thing that Christians were responding to. But sometimes we can continue to respond to issues and arguments and personalities when in fact they're no longer maybe the driving heartbeat of our culture any longer. And so in this book, I'm, I'm kind of putting my finger on what I think is the new sort of way in which people are talking about God, faith, Christianity in our culture now, because I think we've actually seen the rise and fall of new atheism um in the last several years what became a very sort of well established well known sort of phenomenon uh in the internet at least it also fizzled out almost as quickly as it began um these days the new atheists are no longer talking about god to be honest um they're still atheists but they're, they're kind of they've moved on to other issues they tend tend to be more more kind of concerned with the culture wars uh in uh, issues around all kinds of you know lgbt and and race and gender and everything else so um And I was just noticing that those who were now having the conversation about God on the public stage, secular intellectuals, seem to be a lot more open-minded than the Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris's had been from the New Atheist Movement. Obviously, that's exemplified in a personality like Jordan Peterson, who obviously can be a divisive, polarising kind of character in some ways. But at the same time, he was drawing and has drawn huge crowds of young men, especially. And he's... Doesn't profess a Christian faith per se, but he talks a lot about the Bible. He talks a lot about the way whether we can actually live without um, something like Christian faith to undergird our morality, purpose, meaning in life, and that kind of thing. And so it was because I started to feature a number of these kinds of secular thinkers on the show, um, and I could mention a number of other names: um, Tom Holland, a historian here in the UK; Douglas Murray, a well-known journalist, and others who, again, didn't claim faith, but I think we're recognizing that new atheism just hadn't really answered the meaning crisis that was emerging in our yeah. culture. And and I began to sense that actually something new was happening. So that's really what the book is about, tracing some of these secular thinkers who are asking new questions about God, whether we can live without Christianity in the West, and also looking at a number of people that I've had the privilege of speaking with who have crossed the line to faith as adult converts. So, so, so that's why, and, and my kind of Optimistic thesis, in in a way, is so that we may be seeing the yeah surprising rebirth of belief in God as the new atheism wanes and something different takes its place.
0: Yeah, I think that's so good, and and you mentioned quite a few things uh, that really kind of got me thinking. Is you talk about this this rise of new atheism, we'll talk about that in a second, um, but you know. I think as we, you know, our focus on how do we train Christians right to engage the culture and and get into conversations and make a case for the Christian faith, th- there seems to be maybe a disconnect. And I'm curious if you see the same thing between kind of what the 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 intellectual kind of the thinkers are are discussing and talking about and what we see in culture, because you know I, I saw you know when Richard Bo- uh, Dawkins, uh, I don't know if it was his most recent book, but his book. Um, Growing God came out uh, just a couple of years ago. I saw it sitting in the library, it's one of very few books sitting right there. I was like, wow, this is you know still getting spread, maybe I should grab it and kind of respond to it. And I thought responding to Richard Dawkins almost feels fake at this point because most atheists will go, No, we dismissed him, mm-hmm. there's a different mm-hmm. conversation happening. But then yesterday, I was on TikTok and all the arguments. That, that were presented in this new atheist movement were being presented there on TikTok. And people yeah. were talking about how religion poisons everything. It's a cause of evil around the world and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, there just seems to be a, a disconnect, right? Where there's kind of a, a drag or so to speak, a, a delay in the arguments where I feel almost wrong responding to Dawkins at this point, because that's, that's out of the conversation Yet that is what a lot of what you see on the internet uh, and yeah. people claiming yeah. on TikTok and social media. Do you see that same kind of delay, so yeah. to speak, in kind of what arguments are being presented? Where
1: I, I think absolutely, and and when I say the new atheism has fizzled out, I'm, I I speak of it as a sort of cultural movement that really kind of was getting main mainstream attention. You know, op eds. Uh, you know, that was that was kind of dominating the media. I think obviously the new atheism, in a sense, continues to be alive and well on the internet, uh, especially you know because I think those ideas continue to to carry on um, and so on. So I think there's a sense in which, yeah, the the mainstream kind of media culture moves in one way, and then, as it were, on the ground in terms of what people are or your skeptics are saying on TikTok, you know, moves at a different kind of pace. So I I think you're right. I I think there are, there's still plenty of new atheist type rhetoric to be responding to out there in those kinds of internet circles. But I do find that it it does tend to more exist in just in corners of the internet. It's not, it doesn't tend to be what people are referencing now in, in more mainstream media circles. And, and to be honest, as I say, if you look at the actual, you know, front runners of that new atheist movement, they're, they're very rarely, you know, Writing or engaging in public spheres on religion any longer. Their, their kind of concerns have moved on. Frankly, in fact, ironically, you know, some of those folk that I used to have on the show, they've they've changed quite dramatically. You know, in terms of their their agendas, their priorities. Um, I tell the story in the book of um, uh, Peter Boghossian, uh who's not necessarily one of the best known of the new atheists, but he, you know, at the, at the time when their literature was riding high, he had written his own kind of book called The Manual for Creating Atheists. He's a, at the time he was a philosophy tutor at Portland State University. And I remember having had him on my show several years ago to do a debate um, on God. Uh, I then approached him, I think it was in 2018, for a show. And uh, it was because I was coming out to Portland to to do a, a live event and when i reached out to him thinking i you know be, he's he's a local atheist perhaps he'd be interested in doing a discussion on stage he got back to me and was very surprised surprisingly in his email said actually i've shifted a lot in the way i approach these issues now justin you might be surprised to find you know just how different i i treat it now and 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 essentially said because i think we have a much more sinister um enemy uh you know at the gates than Christian Christian believers. And and so it turned out, he turned out to be one of a number of academics who were uh, in the process of creating a kind of set of hoax papers that would kind of come out later in the year um, against so-called grievance studies, um, against the rise of what he sees as kind of um, ideologies, political ideologies that he believes have entered academia, which are stifling free speech. And he was at the centre of, you know, quite a controversy when, when, when all of that came out but it was just very interesting to find that someone like peter Boghossian, who at one time was you know a devoted kind of new atheist kind of anti-religion type suddenly saying to me i'm not interested in debating religion anymore in fact i see a lot of religious people more as my allies than than my enemies these days so so it was just a, an interesting kind of little snapshot of the way that that at least at the uh, you know at the academic level at the kind of cultural level that movement it felt like it was moving quite fast at that, at that moment in time.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and there definitely has been that interesting shift that's kind of taking place, and it's it's you know it's uh, it feels almost like I don't know empowering is the right word, but to to, to get into conversations, and go look, it's not just Christians that are saying Christianity is good. Look at these secular thinkers that are kind of making these similar comments, and they're actually kind of joining together and don't hold to these same views uh, as before. And so now with that, I'm I'm, I'm curious if you know because you've had, I mean maybe you've had more conversations with with secular thinkers and Christian thinkers than anybody else, right? Over the last 20 years, uh, hosting Unbelievable. Um, but for those who maybe are not aware, kind of what what's unique about new atheism that started to rise up? And then I'm curious that even though there there were there are books produced that sold tons and tons of copies, right? The God delusion went far and wide. You know, Christopher Hitchens books on why God is not great and and Sam Harris's books and all these different books that were produced that, that were very widely read. Uh, do you have an opinion on on why you think it didn't really stick? Why, why what 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 caused it to be far and wide, but people not to really be satisfied in what it was presenting. So what was it and why do you think it really didn't kind of stick uh in in responding to how far it went? Yeah. Yeah. Well obviously in some
1: respects, as you've already outlined, it, it did stick. You still hear those kinds of arguments in certain right. corners of the internet. But but at the same time, I think I think the the whole movement started to to flounder to some extent. Because it, it was never a sort of an organized movement per se. It was it was a kind of set of disparate characters but who kind of rallied under this, this banner of the new atheism. Uh and you know, for a while, you know, they were riding high in the bestseller charts. There were lots of these Atheist conferences going on in various parts of the US. I think, I think in those early days of kind of um, social media and blogs and, and those kinds of things, it, it it gave people a rallying point who perhaps were annoyed or upset with. Organized religion, and you know, felt the time had come to 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 band together in that kind of way. And maybe I don't know. In the US, maybe the high point of that was the Reason Rally back in 2012. You know, when tens of thousands of secularists and atheists gathered, you know, on the Mall in Washington to to kind of declare that that it was time for science, you know, to triumph over superstition. We we had a similar moment in the UK, probably around 2008 2009, when we had an atheist bus campaign which, um, was sponsored by Richard Dawkins and others, which, which declared there's probably no God now stop worrying and enjoy (laughs) your life. Um, all of which was, you know, in, to me was quite interesting because I thought, well, if there's one way of getting people thinking about God, it's right, by declaring right. on buses all over London, there's probably no God. Um, so in a way, I, I was very thankful for the New Atheist, just for kind of putting it in people's, you know, uh, eye, eye line uh, in, in that sense, even if it was a message that was antithetical to religion. It, uh, most people in the UK, at, you know, at that point would have not even been thinking about God. So so even to, to put something in their eyeline that said, God doesn't exist. At least got them thinking about God and maybe opened them up to the whole question. I mean, there's a whole extra kind of interesting sideline I could go down of, of yeah. people who are Christians today who actually effectively converted because of Richard Dawkins. But but that's another story. Um, but then, why did it kind of uh, yeah start to flounder? I I, I think because once that all the major players had agreed that God didn't exist and religion was bad for you, the problem was that they couldn't really agree on anything else after hmm. that, and the the movement started to fragment quite quickly into lots of different factions. There were atheists who just wanted to go the pure free-thinking route, you know, we can say what we want, we we won't be bound by any of society's restrictions. And there were others who said no, we we need this needs to be an ethical movement. We need to get some values here. We need to band under atheism plus, you know, because we're, we're not just atheists, we also believe in women's rights and we believe in LGBT rights and we believe in, you know, feminism and so on, um, and that quickly started to emerge into kind of these these different groups of people who wanted to use the this atheist movement for particular purposes, um, and 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 it started to be um, on top of those kinds of issues which started to split the the thing up. There there were also a lot of fallouts, um, particularly around issues of um, allegations of sexism, misogyny. Um, uh, inappropriate behavior at some of these atheist conferences. There was something called Elevator Gate, um, which I think I think if memory serves was about 2011, when a particular uh, female skeptical blogger called Rebecca Watson um, had just given a talk about the way that the atheist movement needed to to reorganize itself because it was too dominated by basically white, pale males, and and that there was a, a problem with sexism in in the movement. That, that that evening, as she was try- making her way back to her hotel room, she basically got propositioned by one of the delegates in in the elevator, and she wrote about it afterwards on her blog and said, "Look, this is exactly the problem. You know, having just yeah. given this speech, I was basically propositioned. Uh, now, that might have been, you know." you know an interesting story but the problem was that then richard dawkins who had also been a speaker at this conference then kind of poured gasoline on that whole situation right. by writing this very sarcastic blog um sort of uh, called, entitled dear muslima in which he effectively Parodied Rebecca Watson's concerns by comparing her to, you know, a Muslim woman who has to, you know, undergo real hardships, you know, of, of, uh, and that sort of thing, and that just ignited the whole thing. And I think from from elevator gate onwards, the the skep- the, the skeptical movement, the new atheist movement, was started to frag- seriously, fragment as people took different sides on these issues. And that only served to continue as issues like transgender started to come up more, more frequently. People, you know, on different sides of those issues, it got to the point where a number of the key people just wouldn't share a stage with each other anymore because Mm. they'd fallen out with each other so badly. And then any kind of you know ire and antagonism they'd had for Christians, you know, in those debates they had, were nothing compared to the ire and the 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 kind of uh, yeah the anger that they had for other people within their own movement. And so I, I think the whole thing started to, to wobble and eventually f- fell. And so, so there was those, all of that going in and I apologize for this long answer, Ryan, but the, then the, the reality is I think that the reason it didn't stick ultimately culturally is because it didn't actually answer any of people's deepest questions. Yeah. People were kind of left with this kind of answer, well, God doesn't exist and science is great. But then we all know when we look at the world that, that science is good for some things, but it doesn't actually tell us who we are, what we're made for. It doesn't give us a sense of identity or purpose that we find those things elsewhere. And the new atheism never really gave a satisfactory kind of way of understanding ourselves in the universe. Uh, I mean, its best attempts were sort of under the kind of humanistic type banner, but I think a lot of people eventually realized that, that those are always, in the end, I think, borrowing from Christianity anyway. So, so, um, and and I think as as culture moved more and more in the direction of the meaning crisis, the mental health crisis, technology, all kind of accelerating that. I think it's left a lot of people asking, well, look, you know, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, they were all very impressive on stage, but they don't appear to have made a heck of a lot of difference to hmm. people's actual experience of life and and whether they're actually le- leading flourishing. Happy lives, so so. I think it left the the door wide open still for something different, and uh, and and that's why I think ultimately, yeah, it didn't it didn't actually you know really get to you know it didn't scratch the itch where, which people actually have in their lives.
0: Yeah. Now, talking about scratching the itch, right there, um, you know, I think as as you mentioned this these deep desires that we have that it didn't really satisfy of meaning and, and justice and, and and morality and these sort of issues. Um, did you see the conversations changing as far as kind of the arguments for Christianity, maybe going from more like the cosmological argument, design argument, making a more intellectual case for Christianity to more of kind of the argument from desire and how Christianity really satisfies our deepest desires as new atheism didn't satisfy those. Did you see that kind of shift? Do you Do you find that to be more persuasive? in the conversations that you're having today is kind of that argument from desire versus the more traditional arguments for God's existence?
1: I, I think you're right. Um, I think that I, I've done a heck of a lot of shows debating the cosmological argument and the moral argument and some of the classic arguments for God and so on. Um, and I think there's there's a good number of people for whom it's really important, actually, that yeah. those kinds of intellectual issues get you know, satisfactorily answered, and that, that that these things do provide a kind of intellectual grounding for faith. But I think it's still only a relatively small minority that that really engage that way. I think actually far more people than what I've, I think I've realised this over the course of doing my apologetics. We we are a mixture of of head and heart um, of all kinds of emotional kind of aspects to ourselves, psychological aspects, and and people interestingly like Jordan Peterson have have been among. The first, you know, um, key people to to point this out really that we 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 ra- rarely ever simply get persuaded by a set of intellectual arguments. There's a lot more going on. Um, another person I quote in the book is Jonathan Haidt, who again is um, not a Christian, not a believer. Uh, he's he's a sort of atheist, you know, secular Jewish uh, psychologist. But again, he's fascinating because he again has sort of you know, quite deliberately stood against the new atheist movement and said he just doesn't feel like it really answered people's ultimate questions. Mm. And and he again has been pointing people back to the ancient wisdom of the Bible um, and religion to say maybe there's stuff here that actually helps people on a psychological level. Uh, and that mm. when you take all that stuff away, when you take away the kind of the religious story that has often helped to shape people's lives, it, people, people don't do as well. People, you know, aren't, now that doesn't mean religion is true necessarily, but it does show that it's obviously had quite a kind of, some kind of value, some kind of survival. And, you know, you know, in, in the the evolutionary terms, at least, uh, you know, some kind of survival value. Um, and, and in the end, ultimately though, when when it comes down to it, I I think you do have to ultimately appeal to people's emotions, to their imagination. That's where we actually tend to, Live our life at, at the most meaningful level. It, it's in the realm of asking ourselves what what really matters, you know. Um, and a, a, a somewhat dry argument for the beginning of the universe needing a cause that is God may not really be enough for many people. That might be an interesting idea, but yeah. the question of of is there is there a a genuine purpose to my life? Could 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 I sort of experience true meaning and true joy? And the stuff that I found that in, you know, in my family, in the, my activism, in, you know, art, poetry, whatever it is, um, I think ultimately that's where you most often find that actually there's there's a real connection uh, between the head and the heart and people start to take this idea of of, of the supernatural more seriously, of, of a God behind all of that. Um, and so a number of the stories I tell are of people who've gone on that journey, both a dual journey of, yes, needing that kind of intellectual kind of foundation, but also finding that actually it was, it was when they discovered that they could believe in this because it made sense of who they were as a person, mm. uh, their love of s- some of those, you know, of, of art, literature, um, and everything else, that, that actually suddenly Christianity became, became a kind of an option on the table for them in a, in a very real way.
0: Yeah. No, that's so fascinating. And, and, and thinking about, you know, how these ideas really have started to shape people and, and, and helping people kind of reconsider this again. And, you know, C.S. Lewis has the argument for desire and, and others have kind of really been doing a lot of work on this. And this was part of my doctoral class that I took is we had a whole morning about four hours on the argument of desire and, and, and Christianity satisfying the deepest desires that we have. And there, there does seem to be such a powerful weight to that. Where, where we recognize that we have these deep longings and questions, which is why I think we see people really wanting to stand up and support and defend certain movements is because we want to feel part of something. We want that meaning, we want that purpose. And it really does seem like this this kind of new atheism that 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 was popular at this time really kind of started to kind of pull that purpose away and saying, you address this in your book, right? If, if, if our universe is just an accident of molecules coming together and everything is determined, then there is no transcendent objective purpose above us and all we are left mm. with is just finding our own individual kind of purpose to try to satisfy us during this life that we have and yeah. there's no ultimate meaning in life
1: and for me this is this is for me a key to why we are experiencing what some psychologists like John Viveki have described as the meaning crisis yeah. i i think it's been accelerated by technology in the way that that's kind of had a almost dehumanizing aspect on people. It stopped us having normal human interactions a lot of the time and, and kind of is rewiring our brains. But but it goes deeper than that. It does go to essentially the the materialist story of reality, um, which in a way was kind of turbocharged by the new atheist kind of evangelistic project. They, they were very much trying to persuade people that, that you are ultimately purely ex- explicable in terms of chemistry and physics. Right. Um, you know, pretty much all of the new atheists subscribe to some form of determinism. Um, and many of the people who, you know, put, publish their ideas and follow them do as well. And and I've been, and and again, in one of the chapters in the book on on this subject, I, I talk about the sort of corrosive effects that really believing that we live in a completely causally determined universe, that is just the ultimately boils down to matter in motion and chemistry that 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 kind of takes away every real concept of love beauty right and wrong just our agency to 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 believe that we are somehow in control of our lives and our thoughts and our, our actions and and for me that's if that's the kind of background hum of our culture even and it's not that everyone explicitly is told this but it's kind of the assumption in so much of academia, in terms of so much of our culture, that ultimately we live in a universe where there is no story. There is is there there is just, as you say, we're free floating entities and therefore we have to essentially invent ourselves and who we are and everything. There's no kind of narrative to which we, mm-hmm. we need to kind of, you know, see ourselves as part of. Um, when you're living in that culture, it's unsurprising to me that culture takes a nihilistic turn and people start to really, you know, uh, you know, believe the idea that there's no ultimate purpose or value to life and that, yeah. Um, why, why shouldn't I just spend my time in selfish ways? You know, uh, why, what's wrong with, you know, just spending my entire life zoned out playing video games with my friends rather than, you know, trying to do the things that once equated to, you know, a successful adult life or whatever it is. I, I, and for me, that's why I think, um, the new atheism in a sense only served to contribute to that view. And and it's why I think people perhaps are ready to hear something different, um, perhaps ready to hear that actually your life does have meaning, that you aren't just an accidental cog in a meaningless sort of clockwork universe. um, And that actually um, there's a sort of, there's a real you, you're not, you know, consciousness is not an illusion. And that actually you were created by a divine mind uh, who meant for you to be here and meant for you to understand yourself as part of a much bigger story. That's the way people always did understand themselves. Yeah. And for me, one of the, the, the problems in our culture is that we've stopped seeing ourselves in that way. And I just wonder if the time's coming when that pendulum will swing back again and people will start to say, you know what, maybe maybe we've been living in the wrong story for, for quite a long time. Uh, and it's been quite destructive, actually, in, in the yeah. way we live, in the way we think about ourselves, the way we interact. So so that's that's a big part of the, the overall theme of the book, you know.
0: Yeah, and that's a, such an important question to have, right? Because I think... What they didn't like about that story is it kind of forced them into a mold. Here is what you are created for. Here is the purpose. Uh, You have actually been designed and there's kind of this calling, so to speak, this this teleology in you. uh, uh, And that's kind of the the traditional view of freedom, right, is is the freedom for, the freedom to do what you were Mm. made to do. And Mm -hmm. then when you are living out... That you are truly free. And I think that actually brings true happiness doing what you are made for versus our culture saying freedom from we don't like that story because it puts us in a box and tells us what I have to do. I want to be able to do whatever I want. And it's crazy because this desire of personal autonomy, uh, this, you know, radical individualism, as some call it, and this freedom to do whatever I want to do is actually what is destroying us, what is putting us in this yeah. despair, because we have lost that sense of meaning of doing what we are created to do. And there's such an important conversation uh, to have there and how this really is affecting us. And I do hope, as you say, that we we recognize the problem of of redefining, of creating this new story that we think mm-hmm. is liberating us. But is actually kind of putting us in its own type yeah. of bondage, uh, and we see that and start to swing the other way. And so there's a lot of thinkers, as you've mentioned here, that that are speaking yeah, into and, this. Uh, th-
1: okay, there are,
0: and uh, and that's why I say I think I think we've got a
1: fantastic example in some of these secular thinkers actually, yeah. who who are who are asking, well, can we live, you know, for, in this kind of a culture for that much longer? Um, I mean, when it comes to the mind and materialism issue that we were just talking about there. Um, another one, perhaps less well-known than, than some of the people i mentioned so far, but Ian McGilchrist is a fascinating person. He's a, a psychiatrist and brain expert, and, and he's just been making waves in that kind of world, talking about the way that specifically that new atheist materialist kind of philosophy has kind of um, appealed to what he would call left brain thinking, which is the idea that you just break the world down into discrete parts and that you've explained it by simply kind of, you know, pointing out the kind of the physical processes that underlie things. And his point is that actually we have a brain of two halves. We have a left sphere and a right sphere. And what was supposed to happen, the way we're really designed is, is that the left, part is important. It's that part that does all that an- that analysis and picking things apart. But it's the right brain that should dominate because the right brain is the part that puts everything together into a coherent story. That's the part that intuits, that has a sense of the bigger picture of things. And he says, the problem is that the, the, the atheist movement has kind of forced us into a mold where we basically treat the world in a completely left brain way and um, and the right brain that that is so important for actually giving us a sense of who we are, a sense of that bigger story, is no longer being accessed. It's no longer yeah. kind of being fed. And I just find thinkers like that, again, um, not a Christian, but someone who's who's saying things that that cohere so well with the Christian story. And and we need to, to kind of listen to some of those thinkers who who are saying things like that. Um and yeah. likewise on and the problem is when people stop having a story like christianity to kind of make sense of their lives the the issue is i don't think we're any less religious deep down i think we kind of got religion kind of baked very deep deep into us and and we tend to just get religious about other things but far things that just aren't, don't shouldn't shouldn't be the things we should actually be getting religious about so you know you you do see you know people Getting, in, in, you know, treating as sacred certain types of ideology, whether it be a sort of transgender ideology or a political ideology, or, or you know, on the right, you know, it might be some kind of nationalistic kind of ideology. There, there's a sort of, there's a whole lot of things that people are, are willing to treat almost as sacred, quasi-religious right. things. And the problem is that I just see our culture trying to basically stuff things into that God-shaped hole because they've been told God doesn't exist. We end up trying to fill it with something else. And inevitably it just it, it just falls apart when you try to yeah. do that because um, and so for me, I think the church is has an extraordinary opportunity in front of it. the new atheism has essentially failed people are confused um stressed out they don't know who they are they're suffering a meaning crisis an identity crisis and the church has a story that for millennia has <laughs> shaped the west and is kind of bubbling away there under the surface, even though people often don't realize it or recognize it. And that actually, maybe this is the time, you know, God has a habit of surprising us sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder whether we're just starting to see the first fruits of that Christian story starting to being taken seriously again. When I see, you know, you know, Jordan Peterson selling out, you know, a theater and just talking about Genesis for two hours straight, you know something weird's going on. You know right. some, something interesting is happening at that point, and and I just wonder if we're starting to see some kind of turning of the tide in that way.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned here Jordan Peterson again. It's 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 interesting kind of reading about kind of what you have to say about him in your book. You know, some kind of and you you hear kind of referred to him as kind of acting as like this gateway drug, especially for Christian for for men, kind of leading to Christianity. And it's and it's what's what what I thought back on is just about a month. Two or maybe two or three months ago, I had a conversation with Tim Stratton on on the uh, divine hiddenness argument, uh, kind of talking about this idea, you know, if if God is there, why doesn't he just show up in front of us? And he was talking or he told the story of how a conversation he was having with a friend where he was presenting the apologetic arguments and trying to help this person understand why God was real. And they just kind of dismissed it and dismissed it. And later on, this person comes back. And I think if I remember right, uh, anyone can go back and listen, but uh, this person become a Christian. And he goes, wow, that, that's amazing. You're a Christian, like, how did this happen? He goes, well, I was reading Jordan Peterson's book and it's like, <laughs> wait, what? And so even in that conversation, we talked about this idea of, of Jordan Peterson kind of being this gateway drug where people are reading this secular thinker talk about Christianity and it's leading them to Christianity. And so what is it about Jordan Peterson and the way that he's addressing this that you think is is really, especially among young men, kind of pointing them back to this Christian story?
1: Yeah. He's a fascinating character, isn't he? I had the privilege of of having him on the show uh, back in 2018 to debate this. And when he came on, you would have been forgiven for thinking he was a Christian apologist. He was opposite an atheist psychologist, Susan Blackmore. And and he just ve- vehemently defended, you know, essentially the Judeo-Christian worldview uh, in this in this uh, debate that I hosted. Um, and it's it's so interesting because I, I think he's someone who has recognised the way in which we are ultimately shaped by the culture we live in, and we can't deny that. And and so when I asked him, you know, do you think of yourself as as a Christian or do you believe in God? He said, well, it depends what you mean by God, because he's kind of he's difficult to pin down on the sort of the the metaphysical kind of belief side, but he says, in terms of what shaped me, I'm a Christian. You know, all my values essentially come from Christianity. And he said, and I live my life as though God exists. Um, So that was kind of as close as I could get, Jordan Peterson. But then you look at the people around him, um, the people he's having conversations with very frequently on his podcast. You know, they are frequently people of faith, Orthodox Christians of one kind or another. In his own family, um, his wife Tammy has come to a a very strong Catholic faith. Um, His daughter Michaela um, had a conversion to Christianity a year or two ago. Um, And then you hear all these stories of people for whom just because, and and I think sometimes it does take someone who's kind of a more secular person who, who isn't sort of already in the Christian camp, sometimes to get secular people thinking about these issues. I think they often feel like they're being sold a bill of goods by Christian evangelists, you know, and inevitably, you know, (laughs) there is a sort of certain amount of bias. Whereas if they hear someone like Jordan Peterson, you know, someone they kind of respect in some sense as a psychologist, someone who maybe doesn't doesn't have a particular axe to grind. And then he starts to talk about in a serious way, the way that the Bible has these psychological depths that we need to uh, think about and learn from. Uh, suddenly I think it, it, it turns people away from that new atheist kind of very simplistic, you know, the Bible's just a lot of fairy tales kind of approach to suddenly Mm. seeing, seeing new depths in this. And as I say, yeah, for a number of people, it has been a gateway to, to, to actually crossing the line to, to faith and belief. Um, now I'm not saying Jordan Peterson is the savior of Christianity. He's as (laughs) flawed a person as any person. I, I don't, like everything he writes or says, because I think he sometimes goes off the deep end with some of the culture warrior stuff. But at the same time, I do find him an interesting bellwether, if you like, of the, um, I I think the changing attitude to faith and, and being willing to kind of take the Bible seriously again, take the fact that people are religious and that you can't just sort of uh, drum that out of them, that, that there's something very deep that's going on there. And, uh, and as, yeah, and, and it has been fascinating to see the people who have actually come, come across the line in part because of him.
0: Yeah. Now, one other person i don't think that we've mentioned yet, and I'm curious to kind of hear your, your thoughts on, uh, is Dave Rubin. Um, now mm-hmm. the reason I'm kind of curious about this is because, um, well, the, the, as I told you right before we went live, that the first YouTube interview I ever did was with Justin uh, back in September of 2019. And if you wanna see kind of how far this show has come, go click, if you're watching on YouTube, go click on the link below. Uh, it was pretty bad. I didn't have the video technology, so you couldn't even see Justin. Uh, you could just hear him and look at the side of my face as I sat in my bedroom. But um, but we, we did that show in, in in preparation for the unbelievable live conference in California which kind of part of that conference was a conversation between John Lennox and Dave Rubin. Now, I I love John Lennox. I, I had the chance to interview him on the show. I named my son Lennox after John Lennox. Wow. Um, and I haven't told him that yet, but uh, maybe he'll find out one day. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I love just his thoughtfulness, the care in which he handles these things and how he presents Christianity. But anyways, you'd host a conversation between John Lennox and Dave Rubin. I was there, I was watching, uh, and it was a fascinating conversation as Dave Rubin just kind of shared his journey on where he was. And, and you include him here in the book of, of one of these stories and figures um, that kind of is, is not a Christian, but is kind of rethinking these Christian ideas. So what what is it about here, or what is it here in the book that you discuss when it comes to
1: Dave Rubin? Well, it was a wonderful conversation. I was so pleased when he said yes to, to having this on stage conversation with John Lennox. Uh, and Dave Rubin, for those who don't know his story, you know, uh, grew up as a sort of fairly left-wing secular Jew, uh, and he sort of had quite an interesting kind of political conversion of sorts. You know, where where he sort of um, at some point decided actually that, that that the left was gone off in a progressive direction that he couldn't follow, and and as he's developed his sort of. YouTube platform, the, the Ruben Report, and everything. He developed a far more kind of, uh, you know, conservative, more right-wing sort of take on politics and so on. So, so that was that. And and he's also a gay man. He's married, uh, and to some extent, you, he, he's a classic sort of secular individual. Um, and he was starting to have on the Ruben Report a number of, you know, the new atheists. You'd had Sam Harris on the show, but also others who were kind of somewhere else on the spectrum of faith. Other secular intellectuals but people who did have a faith um ben shapiro you know who's obviously jewish himself and practicing um uh, he would feature um bishop robert baron who's well-known sort of catholic youtube bishop um and other people of faith and and i was just fascinated by the fact that he seemed to be opening up um to to kind of the, certainly the the importance that faith played and and he of course um was very close to to Jordan Peterson again um, and I think opened up for him on a lot of his book tour and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I was just fascinated to see what would happen with this conversation because I'd never heard him really explicitly talk about his own faith or what where 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 he whether that had changed and and what he said in this conversation with John Lennox and it was a very open uh, yeah. it wasn't in any sense a combative thing it was very collegial there was a lot of laughter um yeah. and dave really did wear his heart on his sleeve and he was very open about where he stood on the faith thing and i I'll just read you actually some of his words because because um, it's probably best to kind of you know say exactly what what he said but he basically said um if I can find the right bit now. Um, He said that he no longer used the word atheist of himself. He said, I just don't like the word atheist. It doesn't fit what I believe. He said, I think Jordan Peterson has gone a long way towards articulating the type of thing that I do believe in. And he went on to say how increasingly he had found that he was more in sync as a secular person with Christians and believers than he was with some of his sort of, you know, secular brethren. So he said, I don't think it's a coincidence that generally believers right now are more tolerant. Who are the most intolerant people in society right now? It's the people constantly telling you how tolerant they are. And that's the irony. Irony. It's the people that tell you you're a bunch of racists and bigots and homophobes. And so I think he'd sort of found, a, because he'd kind of come a, up against this very sort of quasi-religious, almost fundamentalist, um, uh, form of, um, secularism where, where, you know, w- which was, you know, the cancel culture stuff and all of that. He, he actually found ironically that, that there was more openness among lots of the religious people he spoke to, a uh, willingness to discuss, to, to, you know, hold ideas, to, to have that kind of engagement. And I think it had given him a sense that maybe there, that it was worth exploring that again. And so, on, in that discussion, he talked about the fact that he was exploring Judaism again, that he was, you know, looking at whether actually he it was right for him to sort of dismiss all this stuff, you know, at an earlier age. And he even talked about being open to the idea of, you know, looking into the person of Jesus as well. And those are really interesting admissions for a high profile personality like that to make on right. stage. And And I just thought, you know, that's just a really interesting way in which the the ground has shifted so much, you know, that that people are willing to come on a stage and talk in that kind of open handed way about their journey. Now I don't know obviously where where Dave Rubin's at, but it it just it it just again was was an example of the way that God was on the table suddenly in a way that God wasn't, you know, 10 or 15 years before at the height of the new atheism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was, as I said before, it was a very interesting conversation to sit in the audience and listen to them go back and forth because, you know, it's, uh, I was also at the Unbelievable Live in California with uh, Sean McDowell and um, Ryan, no, Ro- Ryan Bell, not Rob Bell. Uh,
1: yes, yes. Yeah, yes, Ryan Bell. That that was a few years before that. That was back in 2016. So right. oh, I'm, I'm glad you were there, Ryan. That that was yeah. a while ago. But, but well, that was, was I, think, I think that was
0: when I, what, I forget because I remember, I, I so I, my, my, Professor was Sean McDowell in my master's studies. And I remember him telling me one day, oh, I'm going on a... Um a radio show to talk about my book on maybe it's the faith of the apostles or the resurrection or something. I said, Oh, what show are you going on? He goes, it's, Oh, it's called unbelievable. And I was like, Oh, what's that? And I had no idea. And here I was studying a master's in apologetics and I had no idea. Um, and so I don't know if that was the first introduction I had to you and your show, or maybe it was when Mm -hmm. then Sean was there. And because again, I'm, I'm close with Sean. He's one of my mentors, um, that, uh, that then I went out and and watched that uh, live as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but, these are, you know, very different sort of conversations, right? It's not the normal debate that, that you expect to see of, you know, the atheist and the Christian or something kind of going toe to toe. But really it was, as you say, he, he laid his heart on his sleeve. It was a fascinating conversation to hear uh, him share, even how Jordan Peterson had had a huge effect on him mm-hmm. and um, kind of where he was at with faith. Um and so uh, it was it was great. Um, and it is available on YouTube for anyone who does want to watch that conversation. Um, you know, we've mentioned a few times uh, kind of throughout this conversation and kind of maybe alluded to it. And maybe if we can be uh, I'd like to kind of point it out maybe a little bit more. Um, you, you kind of have, we've talked about this idea and you mentioned how even kind of this humanism, which is kind of the, the, the new type of new atheism um, of, of kind of this is our 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 our. Our hope. This is what we are pointing to this kind of humanistic movement and kind of just supporting and, and helping humans. Um, but you, you talked about how even the humanistic kind of banner borrows from Christianity or has kind of this foundation in Christianity. Um, and in your book, you mentioned this idea. You say, you know, many modern atheists fail to recognize the degree to which their version of the good life is a product of the Christian culture that preceded them. So I'd love to hear maybe just a little bit on, on what you want to share and how you where you want to take this of of how does the Christian culture and really the Christian faith kind of precede and build a foundation for for many modern atheists and kind of this humanistic movement that's trying to pull God out of the picture.
1: Well, during the course of the book, I sketch out sort of profiles on a number of these interesting thinkers that some of whom I've already mentioned, who are, seem to be on some kind of a journey, and, and one of the ones I I Particularly highlight is Tom Holland, who's a UK historian. Yeah. He he runs a fantastically popular. Uh, he co-hosts a fantastically popular um, podcast called The Rest Is History, and he's written some you know some some really best-selling books on the Greco-Roman world. Um, and one of his most recent books was called Dominion. It's done a lot of the rounds in Christian circles because he came yeah. to some incredibly, you know, Christian conclusions in a sense about the way in which the Christian revolution has shaped. Western world, that that so many of the things we take for granted in terms of human rights, equality, dignity, democracy, uh, all kinds of different values are essentially completely contingent on the rise of Christianity. Um, And he, he contrasts it quite strongly with the the Greco-Roman world, you know, which he knew and in a sense was invested in as a historian, but which to him was incredibly alien the more that he lived in it because of the way that they treated women and children, slavery, or um, the way that, um, you know, sexual consent simply didn't exist in that culture. all, All of the things that, again, we take for granted, and a lot of, I think, humanists and atheists today just assume, well, this is just, you know, the way any civilized society would develop, you know, if we were all just rational and, you know, treated each other as we should be treated and so on. But and but what Tom Holland argued very convincingly, I think, in Dominion, and, and when he came on my show several times over the years to debate this with others, that, that essentially all those things we take for granted are, stem directly from our Christian heritage. Uh, there's no particular reason to think we would have developed these ways of thinking about each other, uh, had it not been for Christianity, in fact, history shows us that the vast majority of cultures historically did not have these right. kinds of views, um, uh, and that it was much more natural to think that some people were disposable. The uh, vast majority of historical cultures have had slavery embedded into them, just as part of the norm. It was really only the Christian West that that you know went against the you know that idea of slavery. Um, and likewise, if you just look at our cultures today, that there, there are lots of examples of cultures which do not share what are these essentially Christian values. Um, and so so when, when atheists sort of say, look, all we have to do is recognise that we're all humans, uh, that we're therefore all of equal value and dignity, I want to say to them, that idea doesn't come from science. It doesn't come from pure rationalism. It didn't come from the Enlightenment. Um, it came from your Judeo-Christian past. Mm. Um, that doesn't make Christianity true necessarily, but you have to at least credit where those things that you hold sacrosanct actually came from. And, and again, I, I just think it's very hard to avoid the conclusion that they they have a Christian basis. So so that I think is, is important, just to establish it, just on a purely historical level, that, that that's the way things are. But then to ask the question... Well, if that's the way we think the world should be, could it be that actually this Christian story is somehow more believable because it shaped the world in that Mm. way, in in the way that we all take for granted these days? Um, And there's a sort of, there's two elements to this, you know, with my philosopher's hat on, you could go down the moral argument route, you could make a case for, for, well, if you do believe in objective moral values, then there must be a sort of moral lawgiver called God that's out there. Uh, and and you could kind of do that and try to show someone that if they do be- believe in these things then there has to be a kind of supernatural dimension to the universe but even just showing them that the the rights and values and duties that they take for granted can just be shown historically to have come from christianity i think i think that that is also an important part of it uh even if they're not willing to to, to take on your points about the the philosophical foundations for morality you can at least show that there's historical argument that all the things they that they, they take for granted actually do come from the Christian worldview. So so that in itself I think helps to give people a sense of of how much they at least owe to the Christian story. And again, perhaps pause for thought about what we might be losing if we start to dissociate ourselves from from the Christian story as well
0: yeah absolutely you know i I really connected with chapter three uh in your book here uh talking about how we're shaped by the christian story and tom holland sharing because part of my research that i had to do for my program was i had to read the book destroyer of the gods by larry hurtado Mm. uh which i don't know if if you've heard of that book um but the the well, funnily enough
1: i actually had i actually had tom holland and larry hurtado on together to talk about that book and that was the first time i had i had tom holland on the show this was well before he'd written dominion so yeah so yeah it's
0: Sounds like they would both agree. Right. So it's not a debate that you're having between those two. Yeah. But the subtitle is the early Christian distinctiveness in the Roman world. And here you share in your book of how Tom Holland really in studying the Roman world and the, the, the corruption and the evil and the things that they would do really was, wow, this is what we saw in cultures around the world. This is what the norm was. And it really was Christianity, even back in that early, you know, that Roman world that started to shape the world and create this story really that 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 undergirds everything that we believe uh to be true today and and you know you even talk about in your book and i just i uh, just for some reason put all your uh quotes that i'd shared um <clears throat> down below or i, I I closed the window for some reason. Yeah, you, you've
1: been doing a great job sharing loads of quotes on, <laughs> on Twitter over the last day or two, Ryan. Yeah, I'm, as I'm as I'm, I'm working through this book, the- <laughs> I'm I'm like bookmarking them every time you share one because I'm like I'm going to grab that and put it on a graphic at some point when I when I start to really promote this book. There you so,
0: go. I'm glad I can help. So thank you. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I think the book showed up on Saturday. I'm like, all right, I got to get through this quick. And as I'm reading, I'm like, hey, let's let's kind of start pushing this. But yeah, one of the things I shared was, you said the fact that most secular societies now observe mutual consent and fidelity as minimal expectations of sexual propriety is a reminder of how deeply entrenched the Christian ethic remains. So even as we dismiss mm-hmm. other kind of sexual norms, there still is this this deep belief on on you know. Uh, Consent on uh, fidelity—that mm. um, mm. there still is this expectation. You don't see that in the Roman world, and Tom Holland talks nice. about that. Is you yeah. don't see them treating women with respect. You don't see them treating the unborn with respect. That you know the kid—not even, not even the unborn, but the born uh, that, that, yeah. you know they would—they would just expose them to nature to die. And so uh, there's just such a, a massive way uh, as you talk about mm. there. And as I read that, I was like, wow, so much of this connects with Larry Hurtado. And so um, I'll have to go back yeah. and, and check out that conversation as well. But um, of really showing this distinctiveness that we have uh, in, in yeah. our culture.
1: It, it, it absolutely does. And and for me, you know, it's, it's it sometimes um, contrast is the, the mother of clarity, isn't it? And, and it is, it is when Tom Holland specifically shows you what that Greco-Roman world looks like yeah. and how casually people treated it. I mean, you know, there's oh, yeah. this great example of a uh, of a Roman soldier who's out on a campaign and he writes back to his wife and he's basically saying, uh, oh, she's pregnant. And he and he's basically writes to her and very casually says, and if it's a girl, expose it, which essentially was this practice of simply leaving children who were unwanted newborns out in the wild to, you know, the wild animals or or, or, or nature. And, and that and 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 this was just a common practice it was it was not frowned upon it now christians were the ones interestingly in the first and second century who went and went to those refuse tips where babies yep. were being left and they picked them up and they started you know the modern sort of orphanage, sort of you know system, and, and everything else, and it was because they had taken that Jew that the Jewish idea of the sanctity of every single life, because everybody is made in the image of God, that was a very specifically Jewish idea, because Ju- Ju- Judaism again, v- very unusually in the ancient world, um, was anti-abortion, anti-infanticide, and and then they took it and they then kind of but they took it well beyond the confines of Judaism and and essentially exported it to the whole world. So that today we think it's obviously, right. you know, we, we we can't imagine people who would do things like that. We, we find it horrendous, but we, we don't realise how, how incredibly shaped we are by the Christian assumptions of our culture for the last 2000 years that have given us that, that sense of horror. Um, but even there, as we know, Ryan, you know, it's, it's, it is kind of, the pendulum sometimes is swinging back, you know, cause you have got moral philosophers now asking, well, if we don't believe that children really have a kind of sense of fully developed sense of their own self, even at birth, is there anything wrong with, with infanticide if there are significant issues and so right. on? So it's interesting, even, even having said all that, it, it's not as though that couldn't change if, if we lose, as I say, that Christian story over time. Um, but yeah, there's so much more I want to say about the sexual thing as well, because there's a fascinating thinker called Louise Perry, who I mentioned briefly in the book, but I've got to know a lot better since writing the book. And um, and she, again, is, is a fascinating person who's kind of gone on a very Tom Holland-esque journey of realising just how, how much our views on sexuality and so yeah. on uh, and relationships have been shaped by Christianity. and and what we're losing in the process of kind of discarding them in, in the West essentially. But, but that might be a conversation for another day.
0: It might have to be, I'm looking at the clock and we got three minutes. And so, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I want to maybe end with this uh, is, you know, those who are listening, uh, you know, Christians are listening to this and they say, okay. And one of the things that you talk about in your book is, is, is the church ready for this? Uh, How are we prepared to start to handle these, these, Thinkers starting to consider Christianity again. So, for the Christian who's listening, how can they maybe engage in conversations better as maybe their secular friends are starting to recognize the the goodness and the value of this Christian story?
1: Hmm. I, I think go and read some of these interesting secular thinkers. Um, maybe you know you, you're still. Th- thinking that, you know, the real enemy is is the sort of the God delusion and the new atheism. I As, as I said earlier, I, I think that phase is kind of over now. Um, it still exists in some corners of the internet, but go and read, you know, Jordan Peterson, Tom Holland, um, others who are writing in these kinds of areas, Jonathan Haidt and others. And, and, and I think you'll be surprised at just how much value there is in kind of the way in which they engage with some of the contemporary concerns and issues that people have, and how surprisingly the Christian story seems to perfectly answer some of the deepest longings and questions that, that they 're raising uh, and that they 're seeing in, in our culture um, there are some wonderful Christian writers as well of course that you could do um, someone i 've really profited from in this whole area just recently is Alan noble um, who you might be familiar with he's a um, he 's a a, a a Christian um, professor i think of of English literature out in the USA but um, his book, uh, his books have been incredibly helpful because he, I think, again, nails this whole meaning crisis and identity crisis and the way in which Christianity speaks to some of our deepest longings. So, so those would be places where I would point people to if they're looking to read material. Um, but otherwise I would say, you know, I'm always a fan of just getting alongside people and talking to them. Um, and before you maybe, and if you, have the privilege of having non-Christian friends and acquaintances before you. Maybe next time, try and leap into some kind of apologetic argument for God. Um, just listen to where they're at. Listen to what their concerns are for the culture. Find out what their deepest desires are. What what things they're most passionate about. And and often, I think that is the way into having some of the best kinds of conversations because you can then connect them to the way that their deepest desires and longings for beauty, truth, meaning. To be part of a bigger story, they're kind of quasi religious leanings, you know, if they really believe that, you know, there are some things really are sacrosanct. I think that's a beginning, that can be the beginning of a conversation that points them back to the fact that there's a bigger story and that we were made to live in it. Um, It's not an accident that we are all on this search for for meaning and purpose and identity uh, because there is one who with a capital M gives us meaning and capital T truth and capital I identity. Um, And so I, I, I want to kind of encourage and empower and um, just give an opt, you know, sometimes I think Christians feel a bit beat up and run down and feel like, you know, there's so, so many problems in the church. There's so much, you know, it's so difficult to kind of tell the Christian story today. I think sometimes people are, are closer to the truth than you than you realize sometimes. Mm. And when I look at some of the stories that I tell in this book of very unlikely converts, frankly, people who you would not have expected to cross the line to Christian faith, but did, you realize actually, yeah, we were often surprised at the way things change, sometimes quickly, tides come back in again. and, And I wonder whether we might be seeing that in our generation.
0: Absolutely. Well, Justin, I have all the information uh, for all of your different sites and projects uh, down below on YouTube. But for those maybe listening on radio or podcast, you want to share briefly kind of where people can go to hear more and, and see more of what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Well, as I say, this is one of the very first <laughs> interviews I've done on this. So I haven't even got my own website properly set up for people <laughs> to click through to the book, but you could go there um, for at least a bit of information. Justinbrierly.com is a good place to go. Uh, obviously, the book at the moment is it's early days for it. So, so it's really about pre-ordering it and uh, you can find it in all the all the usual places. But, um, I hope to within a few days of this interview going up to have at least a few links available from my website where you can actually go and click and, and find the book. And something else I'm planning to do this summer is, um, I'm working at the moment on a podcast documentary series, um, based on the book. So I'm hoping to be able to do something that complements the launch of this book, um, later in the summer. So look out for that on podcast, the surprising rebirth of belief in God as well.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time, joining me from across the pond uh, from England and uh, having this conversation and talking about your new work.
1: Great to be with you, Ryan. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely.
0: All right, everybody, with that, there it is again, the surprising rebirth of belief in God, why new atheists or why new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. Once Justin shares all those links, I will get them out to you as well. One other thing I want to make you aware of is down below is all the social media and all the things and ways in which you can connect. I've recently started doing some Instagram lives, some kind of more informal conversations and Q&As on Instagram. If you're curious, you can add me there. As well as there's tons of other videos that are going to pop up and interviews in the pipeline for the future that I'm looking forward to as well. So if you want to subscribe, like, share this with someone as they hear kind of this argument, this case that we were talking about of why Christianity really is this kind of compelling drawings story and really is the true story of reality. So with that, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day, that you continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everybody. See you next time.
1: to follow your love will guide my